This is a fourth hand production. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental you know governmental I don't uh, know planes that they're building? And police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. This weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. And welcome to Strange Uncles. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Josh. <laughs> I was like, and? Yeah, right. Go out like a lion. So, Who are you tonight? Yeah. Oh, you know, just your resident uh, spooky season appreciator. <laughs> it is that. <laughs> yeah, time is upon us for sure. It's getting closer and closer. So leaves are starting to fall and it's starting to get fucking cold. I didn't say that, but we got a little bit of a cold snap yesterday. I was like, oh, here it comes. Yeah, it's probably going to snow here tonight. I'm not real fucking pumped about that. I'm sure it'll be gone by the time I have to go anywhere in the morning, but... Yeah, but you I'll gotta, say you don't got to drive to the office. You're fine. Yeah, exactly. Well, I got to do a bunch of other dumb car shit that requires me to leave the house fairly early. Oh, really? I was going to ask you, how's that? Uh, how's your truck, man? How are you liking that? Oh, man. <laughs> Driving is like a religious experience. Isn't it lovely? Yeah, it's great. When you got something that doesn't shake and rattle mm-hmm. half the time, so... No, that's cool. Solidly built, well maintained, right? For a change, anyway. But yeah. Uh, yeah, well, welcome. You know, good seeing you guys again on the flip fight, flip side for sure. We've got a lot of lot of things going on. Um, namely, the interview that we have coming up is is something else, uh, and we're going to get into that in a second. Uh, again, you know, October, so we've got some interviews lined up that are kind of within that vein. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll do some Patreon stuff to patrons. You know, just thank you for being Patreon members. You know, we appreciate it immensely for sure. And uh, and we can go from there. Um, Before we get in the interview, you guys got anything to follow up on or kick back on? Um, I didn't think I wasn't expecting this interview to really uh, be so cohesive with October and spooky Halloween and stuff. And I mean, it's way more than just spooky Oh. I'm I, I, that's a I'm downplaying it. I don't and I don't mean to downplay this story at all. But like, it definitely fits in with the October vibes for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, so it it, uh, it it not only fits in, but I I mean again, well, you know, you guys are going to hear it. It's, it's pretty damn amazing. But I think we were all not expecting what the interview turned out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, with that being said, of course, we're, you know, we're going to roll it. And Josh, if you have anything on your side, I, I think on something like this, this interview and the, and the story that uh, Michael, who's our guest that you have on, you're here uh, and what he has to say, I, I would love some feedback from somebody on on any experience related to this, because I know that he's not the only one. I know there's yeah. been documented cases, there's been case studies, there's been stories, there's been books, whether you believe in it or not, sometimes if you're in a situation like this. Uh, man, you're kind of trapped in your own jar. You know, it's hard to get out. And I think that was the situation Michael kind of found himself in. So anyway, Josh, I don't know if you have any feedback on it or not. Uh, I have thoughts. I will save them for later. Yeah. Okay. Well, everybody, that's all I've got. Uh, Let's go ahead and roll into the interview. Uh, Open the gates. (laughs) 
Born in Canada, Michael Gagliardi found a love for music at a very early age. Not only did that love for music grow, but as he became an adult, it led him to the infamous Sunset Strip in the 80s, where he played iconic places such as Whiskey Go-Go and the Roxy Theater, but not before he found himself homeless, living under the Santa Monica Pier before his music career took off. Married now with two granddaughters and five grandchildren, Michael still keeps up his love of music close at hand and is a Latin flamenco and smooth jazz guitarist who plays countless events for casinos and private clients. However, there is another side that Michael is very accustomed to, and that is a world of high strangeness. Speaking on the paranormal, demonology, and biblical discoveries, he looks forward to educating people on the reality of a spiritual world and its inhabitants, the origins, function, and the end game as they pertain to human existence. He recounts personal experience dealing with the supernatural in his book, Devil Take the Hinmost, A True Story of Terror. He writes about a young boy's survival for 12-plus years with a demon-possessed mother. She terrorized the family, the neighbors, and the authorities in the small northern town in Ontario, Canada, from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s. And that is why we cannot have him on the show. It's fantastic. Michael, thank you so much for coming on Strange Uncles. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with, be, be with you. Uh, is it this, this evening where you guys are? Pretty it much. Is. Yeah. It is. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we're yeah. this evening. We're off by an hour, so I'm uh, yeah. Pacific time, and these boys are Mountain time. So, well, as a uh, as a Canadian, you're taking me away from opening night of hockey, but oh, uh, that's okay. Wow! <laughs> wow. You're well, thank you so much sir. for for joining us. Yes, yes, that's a hard one. Yeah, <laughs> are the are the the Maple Leafs playing tonight? Then uh, I I I don't get them because I'm living in Palm Springs, but uh, okay. I'm what. I was watching Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh, and then uh, Seattle Kraken in Las Vegas is going to be playing right after that. Oh, nice. Oh, I forgot about the new team in Seattle. It's yeah, awesome. yeah. They start tonight. They debut. So Cool. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for your sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. You know, I, and you know what? It doesn't have to be a Canada thing. You know, hockey, I think, is I love watching hockey. And the Kraken, looking forward to it because they're kind of in uh, my neck of the woods living over here. So we'll see. Um, yeah, we'll see what the season holds. We're, we're hoping for the best. So Yeah. I love expansion teams. I do too. It's, it's hit and miss sometimes getting their feet off the ground and kind of getting the groove. But uh, once they find it, you know, it seems to work pretty good. So, but yeah, yeah thank you. Appreciate your, appreciate your time. Uh, I guess, Michael, we, we just kind of want to start. I mean, obviously, you know, we've covered, you, you've had a varied career with music and you've done other things and you've got a family like a lot of us do. Um, and I wanted to, you know, we specify that because they, a lot of people that we interview on the show, you know, obviously they, they have a life and they have a normal one and they have kids and they have a camper or whatever have you. And they just kind of live like everybody else does. Um, however, there's some of us that get into, uh, the other side. And, and of course we're talking spiritual world and, and the world of high strangeness and whatever have you. Um, I, I guess we can start there if you don't mind. Uh, and we can kind of start you, something I didn't mention in the bio you originally sent was, uh, you actually speak on some of these things as well. Um, can, you, you want to give a background of just kind of how that came about and, and where you're at in, in that account? Uh, as far as the speaking? Yeah. As far as speaking on the, on the subject matter. Well, you know, I originally I I wrote the book as just uh, it was just a legacy for my girls. My girls are in their 30s now. And and, um, you know, I, I I was writing it actually over covid because my industry being a musician, professional musician, we were the first guys out and the last ones to come back. Yeah. So 
I, you know, I spent that time writing and it basically was just a legacy for my kids. Hey, look at, this is what your old man went through. If you're, you know, when you get old enough or care or want to understand what happened, here it is. And then while I was writing it, my girls would kept saying, well, how's the book coming along, dad? And I said, oh, it's coming pretty good. You know, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, I shake when I write it, you know, it's, it's been very, very difficult, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm keeping going. And they kept asking me. And as I got further along into it, they said, Dad, have you thought about putting this out in the public? And I was like, oh, you know, you know, once again, it's like hearing your own voice. You know, you're like, "Uh, that's this is my story. Who cares? Who cares? And my girls were like, are you kidding, Dad? This is this is like one in a million. You know, people have never heard this kind of thing before, you know, or much of it anyway. So I, I mulled around with with those ideas a bit. And Finally, when I finished the book, I was uh, I was thinking to myself, okay, maybe I'll I'll you know I'll publish it and put it out there, but I was really afraid of uh, of rejection. I was afraid of losing my family. You know, a lot of family members that have no idea have no idea what happened. Um, I I actually have lost my sister over this, who was part of it and is completely shut down she wants nothing to do with me or the past so i knew that that was going to be an issue but i decided to to do it anyway mostly because my girls um convinced me that it was you know they you know they said things like uh you know there might be somebody else there dad who was in your shoes because the the one thing that this whole my whole childhood did was isolate me it made me feel like a freak like i was the only one on the planet that was going through this. And still to this day, I, I, there's no one I can relate to. Mm. I've been to psychologists and psychiatrists and they've put me with POWs that murdered children in Vietnam. And, and uh, I still, I can't, there's nobody I can relate to. So there, that's a really, you're an Island unto yourself. And you know, that loneliness part of it, feeling like a freak is very difficult to deal with. I know it might sound, you know, how, how can you feel like a freak when you got a family and, and, but uh, you know, the mental part of it, nobody understands you. Nobody understands why you do what you do, because obviously this affected me a great deal. I still can't hold down a job today. And this, that was 40 years ago. Hmm. You know, I have severe PTSD. Um, I still have blackouts. I've had 12 blackouts in the last two years. You know, and I can't, you know, when I go to sleep, when nighttime comes, that's when the severe shaking comes and, and my face goes numb and I have to take medication to knock myself out. And how I wake up in the morning is my face is numb and I wake up shaking. That's my, that's my day. You know, that's, that happens to me every day, you know, and I can't, you know, I have different views of things. Uh, you know, I had to learn life by, you know, watching, you know, Little House on the Prairie to, you know, and the Waltons to know how a dad, a good dad would act, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm so backwards in my, in my, my learning and my, my social skills. I wasn't able to talk on the phone till I was like 25. Wow. I couldn't talk on the phone. I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't bear the, the social stress of interacting with somebody, even though, you know, at school, I was a complete academic. 
I was an overachiever. I won academics every year. I was the captain of every team. I won 72 awards by the time I was done school, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, I did all that overachieving, overachieving for nobody, you know, because I grew up basically by myself. My, my mother was in the state she was at. My father was away six days of the week. And my sister lived in terror in her room with a lock on her door, you know, and this is yeah. how we grew up, you know, mm. so... Wow. Uh, it, w- it was very difficult, very difficult. So, you know, this is how when I started writing this book, I reached out to one guy in particular that helped me get this going. And his name was Marty Stalker. He's from Belfast, uh, Ireland. And he did the documentary uh, Hostage to the Devil with Malachi Martin. I heard of that one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He did six years of that. And I reached out to him and I thought, Hey, if anybody's going to get me, this guy's going to get me. He did six years with Malachi Martin, who, you know, was an, an exorcist for, for 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. He's going to understand. And sure enough, he, he, he did, he understood. And, uh, we began talk, uh, talking together. And, uh, you know, I, I was able to release the book because he was the very first person on the outside, other than my family, who believed in what I was saying and believed right. my story. And that, and I, that's when I said, okay, I'm going to publish it. I'm, go- I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. So he was the first one to kind of kick, help me kickstart it. I don't even think he knows that. <laughs> oh, really? But, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk, we talk every couple of weeks, but uh, it was his acknowledgement that uh and his compassion toward me because i don't tell this i never told this story to anybody except my family my immediate family Mm -hmm. you know and you know just my kids and you know they're too young or you know they didn't want to hear it my family doesn't know anything about it my immediate family other than you know my father who i still have a relationship with but he's you know 89 years old now and uh you know but uh other than that all my cousins and and, and, and uh, none of them had no clue. They knew something was wrong. They knew something happened because we moved away and we, no one ever came to see us. And it was very discouraged. And, uh, you know, they never had a clue. So it was very, uh, very uh, isolating. Very hard to go through. Yeah. I mean, we can imagine it, it especially something like that. It, it, it's traumatizing. I, you know, and with that being said, you know, our heart goes out to you. I, I think, um, you know, I mean, well, there, thank you. There's a reason, you know, you're on the show and, and it's, you know, it's it's for the story, but I can imagine it, it's really hard to, to tell. Um, but, you know, your time is, is much appreciated. And I, I guess without, you know, being a little callous about the whole thing, I, I'd like to kind of start the story on, on what, where it began. You know, how did you find out, like, what was the, the beginning of this, this, this event? Well, I had uh, my, I have an older sister who's seven years older than me. So she filled in a few details for me that it really began when I was little, but the first, the first traumatizing event happened when I was three years old. We were living in Toronto. I come from an Italian family. So for lunchtime, we always had a pasta fazule, which is basically a pastina, like star soup. American children would have star soup. Right. You know, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, she, my mother would call me to the table and it would be on the table and I would come and eat my eat my soup. But this one time she called me to the table and it wasn't there. 
So I sat down in the chair and she came up behind me and she poured the, the whole pot of stew or of soup on my shoulder. Jesus. And it was scalding hot. And I, of course I screamed bloody murder and, uh, she, she, uh, didn't console me. She didn't say anything encouraging or help me. I remember this so vividly because it was such a traumatic event. And she called a taxi. We went to the doctor. She never said anything to me on the way, never touched me. We went to the doctor. They put something on me. I forget what it was, but, uh, and then we went home and nothing was said. She never held me. She never kissed me. She never said any words to me. And this was the beginning of this this opened my eyes as a, as a child of three years old, you know, and I write this in the book, I was extremely sensitive, extremely aware and cognizant of everything. I mean, too much. So, right. you know, I was very aware watching my surroundings, watching what was going on. Well, now, you know, I had this fear, this trauma now. So from there, that was three years old. Um, it, by the time I was five is when we moved up to Meaford. We moved up to Meaford, and which was a hundred miles away. And the odd thing was that we, my dad, worked in worked in Toronto, and then we move a hundred and ten miles away, and then he has to drive all the way back down to go to work. What? Really? So, yeah. So this was odd. So something weird happened during that time. We're talking like nineteen seventy one. I was three years old in 1971. And uh, so now my dad is absent. He's gone five, six days a week. He comes home for a few hours, you know, makes the drive, you know, at the end of the week, uh, maybe stays overnight, spends a few hours at home, and then he's back down 100 miles away again. So here we go. I'm in kindergarten. And then the things begin to increase. Now, when I say increase, I mean, since the time I was three years old, and and my sister told me this is that that was the time that she began to hear voices she began to see things and then here we go by the time i'm 5 years old she's seeing things she's hearing things and then she begins to talk to herself a little bit you know beginning to talk to herself so as the years go by by the time i'm 10 years old so by 1978 she is uh, resolved to sitting in a chair at all the hours of the daylight talking to herself. Hmm. And then this began and an answering herself. And then that, that expanded into talking to herself with different voices. Oh, wow. And then the changes in the voices. You know, guttural. If you've ever heard the tapes of the Annalise Michelle cases, yeah, you know, actually, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, one terrifying. of the voices, one of the voices was like that. So, and then as the months and the years, you know, started to go by, then she began to use many voices, so many I couldn't count, and they began to argue, and then she began to to um, get her speech became very violent, very angry, very angry. And then that expanded into uh, foreign languages. And this explains why today I'm a, I'm a student of foreign languages. 
because I heard this for so many years and I never knew what the hell she was saying. So now I actually learned German from listening to the Annalise Michelle cases, all the, all of those tapes. I learned German from it. And and this is why, because my mother would speak in these languages and all these different voices are arguing back and forth with herself. And then the culmination of this, she began to blaspheme. She began to swear. She began to whistle loudly, whistling songs, singing songs, and then, you know, breaking into conversations very like in milliseconds, going from conversations to singing, to whistling, then back to conversations. And then by the time I was 13, 14, she began to do all of that. And then she began to hit herself with a, with a, um, a log across the chest. And I mean, like thud, whacking herself as hard as she could across the chest. And she would do this. She did that particular behavior for about four and a half years. Every freaking waking moment she was alive. So... So real my number not to interrupt you, but I mean, just to get some, some clarity wow. around all this. Um, I mean, so, you know, you're 13, this is, you know, obviously it's gotten worse and worse, you know, your yes. dad's on the road, but at the height of when it was bad or, or whenever that may be, the voices or the whistling came on or the blasphemy, or whatever she was doing, was there ever family intervention? Was there other, you and your sister at that age at, at nine or 10 going, wow, you know, something's wrong. You know, we were there medical people brought in. Was your dad any active towards all this or was was he just non-respondent? Like, what what does that look like? He was absolutely non-respondent. My father, let me just, you know, help you understand him. He grew up in Italy in the war. He was he lived in he grew up in a refugee camp. He had a fourth grade education, didn't speak English very well, you know, and uh, he was. You know, he grew up with uh, six other siblings on a farm in Italy, mm. you know, and then escaped from Italy when he was 19 years old and came to, a, to Canada. But uh, so he was never there. And because it happened so slowly, you know, it was like the proverbial frog in the hot water. Right. You're turning up the temperature. You know, my father would just think, well, she was crazy. That's what we all kind of perceived. By the time I was I was a teenager, uh, it was all just, oh, well, you know, she's just crazy. She's just crazy. I don't, I think for me anyway, I was too afraid to think it was anything else. I couldn't even enter that in my mind that it could be anything else than, oh, she's just crazy to make myself feel better. Right. You know, because I had been growing up with this trauma for three, since three, three years of age, you know, but by the time I was 16, by the time I was 16, we're talking, she's four years into whacking herself with a log. And then with the other hand, she'd be whacking herself in the head with a boot. And this would go on from, from the minute, you know, from early in the morning to right at dusk. And then at dusk, she would retreat into her room. And then a whole different set of activities would start from there. And my sister, I, I, I grew up with my sister, but I barely saw her. Because she lived in her room with a lock in the inside of her door. Yeah. You know, and she too, even though she was seven years older, she never said a word to anybody. Nobody, we, we attended school regularly, you know, and uh, no one, we never thought of saying anything to anybody. So by the time I was 16, I think I was 14 or 13, let me see, seven, I was 12 or 13. One day I was at school 
and a bunch of men showed up in my class and uh, the teacher motioned and called out my name and they pulled me out of school. They pulled me out of school. I got into the back of my neighbor's car and while we were driving, my neighbor said to me, you know, he was the father of the, the, the young boy that lived next door to me. He said, there's been an accident. And I said, well, w- what do you mean? He says, well, he said, your mother tried to kill your sister. Oh, Jesus. So we got home. They had already taken my mother in a straitjacket to the mental institution. What had happened was that my mother was in the kitchen. She was, you know, talking, you know, doing all these crazy voices and talking to herself. She picked up a butcher knife and she yelled at my sister from across the room, said that they told me you're a witch. The voices are telling me you're a witch. And she ran after her with the butcher knife. And because I was lazy that morning and I left the, you know, we have mud rooms in Canada Mm -hmm. on the Uh East Coast. So, you know, it's a little four by four room. I left the door coming in from the mud room to the living room open. And then I left the screen door open. If it it closed all the way, it stuck and you'd have to hit it three or four times to open it. And then the exterior door was wide open. My sister was able to run right out through all three doors with my mom right on her tail. And she ran around the car in the driveway. And then the neighbors, the neighbors had uh, heard her screaming and then they called the police. Was this? Was this the first time that she was hospitalized? This this was the first one. This was the first one. There was more to come. Wow. But this was the first one. And my sisters told me, she said, Michael, if you didn't leave those doors open, she would have killed me. She was right behind me. And let me tell you, let me give you a physical, uh, uh, some physical attributes of my, of my mother. By that point, she was a ravenous animal she ate everything in the house so much so that i had to steal food every winter from the kids at school from their lunches in the coat coat closet room and in the summer i stole food out of gardens and invited myself over to friends houses for dinner type of thing and and she was five feet tall she weighed about 260 to 280 pounds she had long, greasy black hair that was in her eyes. Her teeth were all rotten. If she, when she opened up her mouth, every one of her teeth was only partially there. Her tongue, which she would wag to me, she, she did this evil thing where she would wag her tongue back and forth like, like this to me. And the sides of her tongue were all serrated from the, from the biting because our teeth were all broken. So they were all, all, both sides of her tongue were all chewed up from her broken teeth. Hmm. And she never complained about it once. Never did I hear her complain. In fact, I never heard her speak in a normal, audible voice until the police came. And she, they would sit down in her room with her. And I would hear her in the other room because police would be interviewing me. And they would say to her, You know, so Mrs. Gagliardi, what's going on here today? Oh, nothing, nothing. I I don't know why you're here. You know, I have no idea why you're here. I had never heard my mother speak in a normal voice my entire life. Hmm. Only when the police were there. 
and I, I, can't, wow. I can't imagine through this that, that I, and again, I'm, I'm back to your family and your dad. I mean, I, I, different times, I guess, but you know, did, did he see it to that point? What, it, no. Okay. okay. No, I was going to say, cause that, that's insane. No. to even think that, that, you know, it would get, would go on to that. Yeah. See, he was never there, but I was there all the time. Right. And then when that incident happened, my sister left, she moved down to Toronto, you know, cause she was old enough. And she moved a hundred miles away. And then it was just me and my mom. And that's when things got really bad. Ooh. Everything. She would go knocking on every door in the neighborhood. When the people would answer the door, she'd tell them, I'm going to cut your head off and then walk away. This, and then the cops would come out to the house. What's going on? What's going on? Because everybody called the police, you know, on our whole street on her all the time, because she did this all the time. Right. Right. All so, the time. So go back to, if you don't mind, Michael, when, when the initial happened with your sister and she got chased, she got, she got hospitalized then. What was yes. the outcome? What did the doctor say? Like, did, was she just treated and she was out? She signed herself in and three months later, she signed herself out and she came back home. That was it. Yeah. And I don't know. I was a minor. I'm the minor. I don't know how social services was not part of this. I, I have yeah. no no idea, but the, when I did have an interview with her local doctor, social services was there. I was at their office mm -hmm. and they informed me that she was coming back. And I said to them, I said to them, are you crazy? I said, what, what do I have to do? Do I have to come back here with a knife in my back to show you that, that something's wrong here? You know, it was at that time that I was beginning to realize you know, but still, I never said anything to any of my friends. I never said anything to anybody. You know, I, I left it up to the adults, you know, and they yeah. failed me greatly, you know, but that three months when it was up, she came back home. So, and when she came back home, go ahead. So sorry. So those three months, it was just what your sister taking care of you or you guys taking care of each other at that point? No, my sister left. Oh, she left. Was so it was just me. I was alone by myself you know, alone by myself in the house. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, was trying to live, you know, my dad was there in and out, you know, wow. and then three months wow. later she came home and it all started over the moment she walked in, the moment she walked in, she started, she started with the conversations and she sat down in her chair. I remember her saying when she walked in, she walked right by me. Didn't even look at me. Didn't even acknowledge me. She went right to the kitchen looking for food. She went right to the kitchen looking for food. And then she sat back down in her chair, which she had broken her chair because of her weight. So she was sunken down in this chair up to her armpits. And she sat in this chair, like I said, every, every hour of daylight. And then soon as it came at dusk, you could set your clock by it. She would go into her room and then when she was in her room, I would feel kind of relieved, you know, cause I'd be in the living room. She'd be in her room. And then I would hear all this banging, you know, because we had a, we had a basement. So we had a sub floor. Mm -hmm. So if you banged on the floor, you could hear it. You banged on the walls. It wasn't a very, you know, 1200 square foot home, you know, any banging, you can hear it throughout the house easily. Yeah. It, it was like three people wrestling in the room and I would be sitting outside in the, in the living room watching TV going, what the hell is going on? And then I'd run as fast as I could to try and catch her off guard. And I'd open the door, you know, throw the door open really quick. 
and she'd be lying in bed with the covers pulled up to her eyes, not moving. And I'm like, what the, what is going on? And then as soon as I closed the door and I'd walk away, two minutes later, it all started again. And then she'd start to scream. She'd start screaming and, and she'd start screaming, Satan, you know, and all this stuff and just kept screaming. And, you know, it was, it was around the uh, time when I was a teenager that I started to, I started to really lose it. Um, I had, by this time, I had already pushed an armoire against my door and, you know, I was sleeping with a hockey stick. I slept in a fetal position for about seven or eight years in this exact same position, never moved all night that I wore a hole in the mattress to right down to the springs where my knee, my, my hip, my shoulder and my ankle were, and I never moved. And every night, sometime two, three o'clock in the morning, she'd come and rattle my door and trying to get in. And then she'd start screaming and, and walking down the hallway. And this went on every day of my entire life. It never stopped. It's as if she never slept. That's and by 10th, by 10th grade, I, I was like, I told you before, I was winning every award. I was an academic scholar, you know, in school by 10th grade, I was losing my mind. I was starting to fail everything. I, 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 I couldn't handle it anymore. And I was really thinking within myself, you know, cause by the time you're, you know, 16 years old, you're starting to think now, you know, right. you're, you're more aware, you know, you're cognizant of what's going on. And I was thinking to myself, I've got to kill her. I've got to kill her. Or she's going to kill me because she, she tried to get in my room every night for seven or eight years. And, and I would stay, stay awake, you know, holding my hockey stick ready for, you know, to her to push the armoire over. And then I'd have to, you know, I would think about how I would uh, kill her. You know, because I mean, that sounds understandable. I mean, that's a lot of trauma to put some kid through day after day after day. Yeah. And it never ended. It never ended. You know, that's and then uh, by the time I was uh, 16 or 17, um, a final incident happened um, because she was eating everything like this voracious animal. If you remember the Annalise Michelle case, the demon starved her. Well, they gluttonized my mother. She ate like an animal. I never, she didn't even eat like a human being, like, you know, holding up a chicken leg and, you know, with two hands and and biting it. She'd take it with one hand and just ah, the whole thing right around and the whole, whole thing and just like swallow it. It's like, she didn't even chew it because her teeth were all broken. I don't even know how all her teeth got broken. You know, I have no, no idea, but every one of her teeth were broken. Hmm. You know, I think was she gritting her teeth or, I, I don't know. I, I don't understand it. It was just part of the whole, you know, psychodrama, you know? Yeah. Believe in UFOs? Felt that chill up your spine that you just can't explain? Contemplate the other side of reality? Do you shake your head at the world that seems to have lost its common sense? Well, look no further than Strange Uncles. Find them on all podcast platforms and call their hotline to tell your side of reality at 801-252-6945. Open the gates. But did, you, did you ever try and like 
move back down to Toronto with your dad, or was that ever an option? I mean, your, I, your I, you sister, know, or I mean, somewhere, I mean, family. Something? I just, I feel so. No one knew what was going on when yeah. my dad would go down to Toronto and work. He had a truck with a bed inside it, so he slept in his his truck yeah. and then went to work. So, you know, and he would come back home like on a Saturday night, stay for a couple of hours and then be gone. So, you know, and sometimes when he'd come home, you know, you know, my mother would be there and she would be prophesying, saying everything that he was doing while he was down there, you know, and I could see the embarrassment on my father's face. Like, is she right? I would think to myself, you know, but my dad never said a word, never said a word, you know, and he would swear in Italian. He would just swear in Italian and then leave. And, and that was it. Did Was she, um, when your dad was there, did she change her? Did she curb how she acted? Was it the same? No, she directed her hostilities toward him. Right, right. She, she, everything she said, she was prophesying. She was saying about what he was doing during the week. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. You went to the, you know, you went there and you went here and he had a girlfriend and, you know, and she would do these in all these voices, you know, and she'd be talking to herself. He wasn't even in the room and she'd be saying these things. He'd be wow. in the kitchen and she'd be in the living room and she would not stop the entire time he was there. She kept going and going and going and going. And then he'd just leave. He'd just leave. And yeah. then, you know, I, I have to tell you, there were two, two lucid moments that I remember from the age of three to the age of 18 where she stopped this craziness for 30 seconds and addressed me. One time I was walking across in front of her and she looked at me. She stopped, she stopped singing, whistling and arguing and fighting in multiple voices and languages. And she said to me, and it looked like she was reaching out to help because she said it in her voice. She said, they're running up the back of my spine into and perching in my head. Oh. That's how they, that's how they coming in. Oh. That's how they're coming in. And then boom, right back. And she go right back into it. She, she, she did got, that she twice. Got control at least a couple times, but just minimal at minimal. It was like 30 seconds. It was like yeah. 30 seconds, you know, and then the, the arguing and, and the arguing, the conversations went on. Right. She was lucid for like 30 seconds and she was a short, she was only five feet tall. Mm-hmm. Her voice was relatively high. So her vocal cords were short. So she, I knew her voice, but her voices, the voices that were coming out of her were deeper than mine. Right. right. You know, some of them were deeper. They were all guttural, different tones and, you know, and then she'd whistle. Like if you ever read the Roland Doe case about him whistling in perfect pitch, really, really loud. (laughs) This is what she'd do. And then she'd sing hymns really, really loud, you know, like an opera singer, and then go right, snap, a millisecond later, snap right back into the voices. I never heard her talk, her normal voice. That's insane. Yeah, I can't believe it. How did you, so you're 16, you have these thoughts of, you know, killing your mother to make all this madness stop. Yes. Which is very understandable. I mean, how did you fight that urge and how did you get through that period i suppose well there when i was 16 17 now i'm like six foot half inch i only weighed 126 pounds but now i'm really tall and Mm. you know i tower over her 
And I thought to myself, you know, I can outpower her, you know, and, and I was really thinking this was by 10th grade. I, I remember this because that's when my grades started, started going down. I started skipping school and I, I was, I didn't know what to do. I w- at one point I thought I was going to do a bomb scare in my high school just as a, I was reaching out for attention and I didn't even know why. Yeah, I didn't even know why I yeah. thought that, but I was going to do that. But at this point I was really like, okay, it's going to be her or me. One of us is going to die in the very near future. So what had happened uh, a couple of times I punched her. I punched her really, really hard because I couldn't, I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle being at home trying to study and hearing her this babble. It never ended. And I, I, I was, I, now I knew I was beginning to lose my mind. So I think it was the summer I was 16 or 17. I was coming home. See, by this time, my father would put all the food. This has happened before, but um, he would put all the food in one of those great big box freezers downstairs. And we had a chain on it, a big, heavy chain, because there were no food. I was starving to death. I was stealing food every day. Every day I was stealing food. I was doing my own laundry. I'd been doing my own laundry since I was like eight years old, seven or eight years old. And, and the, you know, I had come home one afternoon. You know, we had a basement and you can get from the basement from the inside of the house and from the outside of the house. Mm-hmm. So there were two entrances. You know, of course, you had to climb stairs in both situations. Right. So I parked my bike outside. I'm coming down the stairs and I come down into the basement and I see her. Over at the freezer, she's got a hacksaw and she's hacking through the chain. And the only thing I could think of was I just yelled at her, hey, and she turned around at me and went, and she snarled at me. She bared her teeth. Her eyes were like black pools. She threw the hacksaw down or dropped it. I'm not sure. I remember that going to the ground and then she ran upstairs and I I tell you, I don't know what what I was feeling, but I was drawn to the horror. I was drawn to it. I was like, I'm going to kill you or you're going to kill me. This is it. I I don't know what it was, but I was so drawn to it. I chased her up the stairs. She beat me up the stairs, ran into her room. Let me tell you, she was five feet tall, 260 pounds. I mean, she had cankles and the whole thing. And she beat me up the stairs. I'm 126 pounds at that time you know, thin as a rail. And, uh, she, she slammed the door so hard that it made all the, all the air in the house suck in, you know, and all the windows shook, you know, Mm. because there were windows open, you know, so you get that suction. And then I I went to, to open the door, her door. And I saw that the door was depressed she was leaning against the door so hard that it was bulging. The door was bulging towards me and I couldn't open the handle. I'm like, how the hell can she hold the handle more than I can twist the handle, you know, cause I'm bigger and stronger than her. And I could hear her behind the door snarling it really low and quietly like, <laughs> like this. And like I said, I was drawn to it even more. I I wanted to kill her right then and because I knew she wanted to kill me. So I was like, this is it. This is it. I got to get into this room somehow. And I was shaking like crazy. So I, and then I couldn't open the door. 
So I just stood there and I was quiet. And then the bulging in the door disappeared. And then the door, the handle went loose because you can tell when somebody's holding the handle, it kind of moves a little bit up and down when somebody lets go the handle on the other side. Yeah. I saw that she let go of the handle. So I kind of like rub my hands together and I'm like, okay, I'm going to swing open the door, you know, cause I, I was, I thought for sure, this is it. One of us is going to die here today. Yeah. So I grabbed the handle and I swung the handle open. I swung the handle open and there she was standing there. She was holding a bucket and she had a handful of pennies in her hand lifted over her head. And when I looked at, we met eyes, we were probably two feet away, three feet away from each other. The left side of her forehead and temple were bulging like a balloon Hmm. bulging from one side. Like if you, if you, you know, press the air on one side of a balloon, it goes bulging out the other side. Uh That's what her forehead was doing. And her eyes were just black. They were just black. There was no pupil. Hmm. There was no pupil at all. When I saw her face, I don't even remember whether she threw the pennies at me or not. She, She lunged at me growling. And I was in absolute shock when I saw her face bulging in her eyes like that. I ran out to the living room, ran outside. I could hear her running behind me and I got outside and I ran out, you know, far out into the driveway. We had a pretty big driveway and uh, she wasn't behind me. And all of a sudden I heard the door slam again, her bedroom door slam and all the air once again in the windows. I could see the window, the front windows shaking. So I'm standing in the driveway. I'm now... I'm now completely and utterly in shock. Uh, I was, I was going like this. <laughs> I couldn't even draw a breath of air or say my name. I was trying to say my name to calm myself down. I couldn't do it. So I spent maybe 10, 15 minutes on the driveway. And then I said, I got, I got to call. I got to call my dad. So fortunately, like I told you, the mudroom door to the living room, the phone was right inside the door. It was like a foot away from the doorknob on a, on a, on a shelf. So I thought if I could just reach in and grab the phone, cause I know it had a long cord. And I did that. I reached in, I made sure she wasn't around. I grabbed the phone. I pulled it outside as far as it would go. And then I went to dial the phone number of his girlfriend's house because I knew he was there. He just happened to be there that day. He happened to be there. It was a Saturday afternoon, I believe. And I couldn't get my finger in the rotary. You know, there's a rotary dial phone back then. Oh, yeah. We remember. I, yeah. I couldn't get my finger in the in the numbers. It took me 20 minutes to dial the phone number because I kept I couldn't get my finger and it was shaking so bad. Finally, when uh, someone answered the phone, I, I, you know, I was on the phone. I was going, <laughs> and his girlfriend recognized my voice and I heard her call. Emmanuel, because my dad's name is Emmanuel. I heard heard her call him. He got on the phone and I was just like, Dad, you know, and he said, I'm coming. I'll be right there. He was only a mile away. So he was there within a couple of minutes. And he asked me, he got out of the truck. He asked me what was wrong. I, I couldn't say, I still couldn't speak. I still couldn't speak. I, I, I couldn't, I was stuttering, you know? And uh, so I followed him. As soon as he walked in the, the mud room, 
and opened that living room door. He stepped inside. My mother was standing on the other side. She ambushed him, grabbed him, threw him to the ground, jumped up on top of him and started scratching his face and growling. And my dad, my dad was like back then he was five, seven, probably 170 pounds, 170, 180 pounds. So, you know, far, far bigger, taller than her and able to fend for himself. He could not, he could not resist what she was doing to him. She was scratching and beating him. He finally, after a couple of minutes, I was just standing there in shock. I was standing there in shock. I was watching the whole thing. He broke away from her. And he ran outside and I ran outside with him. We were standing in the driveway and my father was in shock. He couldn't talk. I was in more shock now and he didn't know what to do. We were just standing there and he was like, oh my God, his face was bleeding because she scratched his face all up. You know, he knew that that wasn't his wife. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, took, and, it took that much to get to a, a realization. He, uh, yes, and you know what? We've never talked about it in forty years. I was. We've never ask talked you. about it. Okay. Okay. No. Never so up. what happened at that very minute? The phone was still outside. He called the police department, and within twenty minutes, the police showed up and the mental institution showed up. They Thank showed God. up in a big white ambulance and they took her away in a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. And once again, I heard her talking while they were talking to her because her bedroom window was open and it was right there where we were standing. And she was saying, I don't know. I don't know what the problem is officer. Normal. Everything's normal. I don't know. Everything's okay. Yeah. Everything, yeah, yeah. everything's fine. But they took her away in a straitjacket. and three months later she came back. Oh, Jesus. I'd be pursuing or something, the whole establishment of Canada and how they handle mental health. That is, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. So, I, well, I can't, yeah. you know, that that's not even the half of it. You have to read my book to get all the details because we can't get the details in in an hour. But she lit the house on fire. She threw everything that I owned into the fireplace so that the fire in the chimney caught on fire and the attic caught on fire. Mm. And the fire department had to come out probably eight times, you know, during the winter times, eight seasons, you know, two or three times, sometimes in a whole season, you know, and the fire department would come in they'd come in right to where the fireplace is and her chair was literally four feet away and she'd be slamming herself with a log on the chest and hitting herself with a boot and still talking. And while the firemen were coming in and out, you know, and nobody, <laughs> nobody called that out. See, that's nobody, nobody yeah. said a, a goddamn word. Yeah. I was oh. in shock of that. You know, so, nobody said a word. So at this point, you you're how old? You're what? Seventeen? Yeah, this old? is the end of it. Yeah. Okay, so so that's the end of it. Oh, okay, and that and that's why I was going to get to basically because I mean obviously, you know, and, and again, folks, a uh, uh, book that Michael has re- uh, written and it is called uh, "Devil Take Hinmost: uh, The Story of Terror." Uh, you can find it on Amazon uh, amongst other things. Um, amazing story. Where so <laughs> your dad obviously has an idea. I would think at this point. You know, he, you, different encounters from the healthcare service, taking your mom away, having her back. You're old enough now to damn near graduate. I, I've been thinking at this junction, what's, what's the end game here? Where, where did she go from this point? Well, three months later, she came home because she signed herself in. She asked to sign herself in when she got to the mental institution. I don't know how she knew that, sure. but when you sign yourself in, 
you can sign yourself out. You're liable. So, yeah. yep. Three months later, she came back home and I was like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. One of us is going to die. Mm-hmm. So my dad sold the house. I made plans and I left for California. I went to California and was homeless under the Santa Monica Pier. And that was heaven compared to what I was lit, what I lived through. Yeah. You know? Oh. So what happened was she got moved to a little apartment, uh, about a half an hour away. And two weeks after I was in California, I had found a, a, a girlfriend and I told, I told my cousin, um, they lived in Upland and I told them where, okay, if you need to get a, a hold of me, here's a number you can reach me at. Two weeks later, they got a hold of me and they said, we got bad news for you. And I said, what's that? They said, your mom passed away. Oh, and I, oh. I, I said, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, apparently she died in her apartment and uh, the neighbors complained because she was decomposing. That's how they found out that she oh, had died. Shit. And the, and the coroner said that she had died. It had been 10 or 12 days. They, they said that she had died pretty much on this day. That was the day that I left Canada. Oh, so wow. it was, it was like a wringing of the hands yeah. for the, for the demonic entities. The job's done. We're finished. And, but this was just the beginning of my story. You know, uh, what I went through was nothing compared to the mental anguish I was going to, to deal, to deal with for the next 40 years. And, I wrote the sequel to the book, uh, Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2, The Aftermath, which is coming out this week. And that's how I dealt with it over the last 40 years, because I've never talked about it until now. Right. Oh, my God, Michael. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. Of course, you know, you sent me your bio and, and, you know, we knew you lived homeless for a bit. And, of course, you know, I'm sure that music and everything else was kind of your escape, I I would think, through through all of of what had happened. Um, I want to back play just a little bit so she she passed unfortunately well maybe not unfortunately i mean it, it sounds like that's really what it should have came down to um when was there or were there any talk amongst yourself healthcare where and maybe this is 20 30 years after the fact whatever have you where this was defined as a possession like when did that start becoming <laughs> a a known thing well it wasn't a known thing they they were trying very hard to cover this up and keep this quiet because they didn't know what was going on this was this was all over their head and i'll tell you something interesting when i was when i was and i call it researching for this book during during covid this was actually about 3 3 months ago it was in july mm-hmm. i happened to call the very mental institution that she was admitted to <clears throat> and i said listen i'm researching for a book I need the the uh, the uh, files on this particular woman, and they asked me, "Okay, no problem. It's thirty five dollars." And uh, they asked me, they asked me what uh, you know what years they were from, and I said, "Well, between nineteen seventy five, seventy four to eighty five. And she said, uh, "She said to me, "Oh, well, those records would have been they would have been destroyed. We don't keep that stuff." Really? And she and and I said, mm-hmm. "Yeah." I said, well, she goes, well, you know, I'm, st- I'm sitting right here at the computer. I said, why don't you just give me her name and, you know, who knows? So I'm hearing her clacking on the computer. I give her my mother's name. She's clacking on the computer, and then I hear silence, and she goes to me, hmm, that's odd. She goes, all of her records have been kept, and they've been archived to another building off campus. Huh. 
and I said to her, can you get those? She goes, she says, oh yeah, I can get them for you, but not today. She says, I'll get them for you and I'll call you in a day or two. So I wait a day or two. I wait a week. Nobody calls me back. Hmm. I call back there. I forgot to get the lady's name. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. She doesn't exist in the system. She's not there. And I'm like, God damn it. Mm-hmm. I wanted those. And, you know, I, I, I talked to this guy. I talked to this guy who was an exorcist in Canada at the very time this was happening. And he said to me, that is protocol. He said back then, and he said, what happened? He says, I'll tell you what happened is that when she was in observation in the mental institution, she did something. She did something or did things that were above their diagnosis that were unexplained. That's why her, her case got archived or else they just throw the files away. You know, they don't keep that junk. They got all kinds of crazy people in there. They don't care. They said, that's what they do when, when it is unexplainable. So she did something in the mental institution when she was there and they archived her files. And now when I ask for them, they won't give them to me or they don't know anything about it. And you, and I'm assuming we're assuming that you, you haven't had any luck in that realm at all. No. And I keep trying. I keep trying. You know, I don't remember the lady's name that I talked to because, you know, Canadians are very polite, Mm -hmm. you know, and they do what they say. You know, if she says she's going to pull the records for me, she's going to pull the records for me. You know, and I call and like, nope, nobody knows. Nobody's done that. Nope, nope, nobody. Not a clue. Have no idea. You know, so I'm going to continue trying. But uh, the guy told me, he says, he said, brother, he said, I was an exorcist during that time in Ontario during that time and he says that's exactly the protocol they are told to archive them and never speak of them if anybody wants wants them back that's because something happened that was beyond their diagnosis wow so you know and again you were looking at time we were about out of time but i did want to um i did want to backtrack you mentioned something about your sister you know she was obviously she was seven years older than you she had a chance to get out Yes. You mentioned that you had had the conversation with her and, and she just kind of blocked you off on everything. Yes. How, so do you, do you think that she is aware or do you think she chalks it up as mental illness or that it's truly something different? I don't know. We've never talked about it. Never even done We've it. never talked about it. And my father and I have never talked about it. It was just in the last couple of months mm. that I told my dad what my, what my problems are because I told him I had gone to the hospital a number of times for extreme stress and blackouts and the paramedics are at my house, you know, five times in one week, Mm -hmm. you know, and he asked about that. And I said, dad, mom, I mean, what do you think? What do you think happened? What do you think happened to me? And he didn't say anything. You know, my dad is part of that, uh, part of that, uh, that generation that doesn't talk about anything. If it's bad and negative, they keep everything suppressed Old everything's culture. good. Everything's fine. There's a shiny car in the driveway and, and that's how they are. Yeah. Old culture, especially, old tradition, you know? Yes. Especially if you're Italian, they don't talk about the old country because that's the past. We're living in a new country. We don't want to talk about the war. We don't want to talk about the atrocities. They don't want to talk about nothing. Yeah. So, but that was the first time that my dad acknowledged it. And I know he acknowledged it because he actually sent me money during COVID because he knew that I was having a hard time and he's never done that. Wow. Really? <laughs> he's oh. never done that. So he knows, he knows. I told him, I said, dad, she, she 
created a monster in me. You know, I said, my mental stability has been horrible for 40 years. Uh, I mean, I've been on suicide lockdown in Yorba Linda, you know, when it was bad in my thirties, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's why you got to read the book because there's so much more material to it. But uh, the, the aftermath is almost as bad as the a- actual incidents, you know. So, uh, you know, and your immediate family too, your wife, I, I, I would understand. I mean, obviously you guys are still married, so she, she's she been there at, as much as she possibly could for support mechanism and, and to get you yes. emotionally. Yeah, yeah. Thank yes, God. I mean, she had her times where she was ready to bail, yeah. but uh, we've been going 34 years now. You know, since 1987, we've been together. Good for you. You know, so yeah, and we have two kids, two kids and five grandchildren. Yeah. So, wow. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, there's a little bit of positive to take away. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Are are you? (laughs) Hasn't been easy. Oh, yeah. It doesn't sound like it. I can imagine. Um, and I've just got one last question. And then of course we can, we can do some promotion on your side. My, and, and again, I, I think more than anything, um, I mean, obviously your story is, 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 uh, emotional and just horrendous. I mean, you couldn't even imagine. Um, where do you, where do you go from here? You mentioned there's a part two, but, but have you, has your mental, has that gotten better? Is that, or is this just something you accept that the, the demon's always going to be there? And by that, I mean, you know, emotional problems, whatever have you, are you worried about your kids, for example? Like what if, you know, they have issues or, or repercussions? Well, the paranormal thing never stopped. Yeah. It, it it started when our kids were young. Now it's starting with my grandchildren that are young in their houses too. And, you know, it's, it's not something I'm afraid of anymore. I mean, because of this whole thing, I became a Christian from all of this. And, uh, you know, because of the blood of Christ, you know, I just speak, I speak the name. I mean, even when I was writing the book, I was having all kinds of paranormal activity in my house, trying to prevent me from reading the book or from writing the book, right. you know, and uh, I'm not afraid of it at, at all anymore. I have total control over that, mm-hmm. but you know, the mental stat, the mental uh, stability, you know, what it's done to me, it's done to me. And I, I bear the scars and they're not going away. They're not going away, but I've learned, I've, you know, like anyone would, if you lose an arm or a leg, you, you learn to do things a different way. Yeah, no, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I learned to be a father by watching Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons. And I modeled my fatherhood after that, you know, and, uh, you know, the getting through, uh, you know, getting through life. I've never been able to hold down a job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that's been very difficult. That's why I'm a musician. I play a couple hours, a uh, couple hours a night and I'm done. I'm a flamenco jazz guitar player. Right, right. And that's what I do. And then I got to move on because I, I can't, I hate, uh, you know, uh, crowds. I hate loud noises. You know, everything's a threat. I have to establish a threat level every room I walk into, you know, and it's because of the way I grew up. You know, I'm like a military operative, you know, like a yeah. soldier. Yeah, and that's how I view my life. And I'm still on guard and still on duty, you know. That's 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 crazy. Um, I, and I, were you ever worried? I mean, my last question is, were you worried about having children? Did that ever like, no, I don't want to bring them into whatever this may be. No, I was never, uh, I, I didn't want boys because if boys were going to be like me, because I was extreme. I mean, I was on Ritalin, uh, in 71, my mother put wow. me on Ritalin. Wow. You know, if you know what Ritalin is, Ritalin was for world war two, you know, it, it was for the effects of, yeah. 
Right, right. You know, it, it was an experimental drug. But I was on Ritalin in 73 because I was hyper. I was just a boy. I just wanted to have fun. That's all I ever wanted to do was just have fun. Yeah, just you know? a kid. Yeah, but uh, I never wanted boys because I was afraid they'd be like me. You know, you kind of scare yourself when you know who you are, you know, and I know who I am. I know where I came from. And but I wanted girls and my girls were a joy. They sat and read books and they never gave me any trouble. You know, when they were teenagers, they gave me trouble for one year and then that was it. And they snapped out of it. Yeah, but I, so I, I was, you know, I don't know if you know this, but that's normal. <laughs> I mean, you know, teenagers, <laughs> you know, they're absolutely insane, at least for a year or two. Till you calm yeah, them again, you know? but I just didn't want boys, you know, jumping off roofs sure, and stuff sure. like that, because that's what I did. You yeah, know? yeah. Something, something else to do with. I had Man. no fear. <laughs> yeah, Michael, I it tell you, amazing. I, I mean, amazing story. You know, as unfortunate as it was to go through it, um, you're here to share it. You're still alive. You've got a family. You've got a, a yes. livelihood. So, I mean, you know, not to sound all, you know, you know, wishy gushy about it, but, but you've got, you know, it, it could have been a lot worse. It sounds um, from what had occurred. Yes. So, yes. And yeah. I've almost died a number of times from very, very strange and suspicious, uh, suspicious wow. uh, um, situations, Wow! but uh, yeah. I'm still here and uh, it, yeah. it's all good. It's all yeah. good. Well, yeah. Well, definitely. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I mean, that's, it's, it's been a pleasure. A very, very personal and very, uh, very intense emotional story. So yeah. thank you so well, much. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I also now, because of all of this and the studying for 40 years, um, I, I'm actually a speaker too. And I go places and I speak on demonology and uh, the paranormal world. I've talked to Josh Gates and Dave Schrader and for, from every TV oh, yeah. show on yeah. TV. I've talked to all of those guys. Good for you. You know, and I've, I've been on a lot of their shows. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm like the ultimate debunker when it comes to because I'm now I know the discernment. You know, I can hear demonic speech. I, I know the gate. I know the inflections. I know the speech. I heard it for, for more than a decade yeah. every day of my life, you know. And I'm, I'm very, very uh, in tune to be able to understand those things, yeah. you know, oh. just like you would your own mother, you know, or your kids, yeah, you'd know their voice in a crowd, absolutely. you know? Mm-hmm. No. Yep. Well, good for you it's for exact- sharing it. Good for you for the education yes. too, because I, I think, you know, in this field, um, you know, it, it, we got into it uh, just because, you know, it's always fascinating to all of us and, and yes, it is. Other, but at the same time, as fascinating as it can be. Boy, I'll tell you what, there's a danger side and uh, there is, yeah, and that's yeah. what I speak on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Michael, again, everybody, um, that's Michael Gagliardi, uh, Devil Take the Hindmost, A True Story of Terror. You did mention you were writing a part two, and, and we want to give you a chance to promote anything else that you may have. Yeah, it's done. It's it's in final uh, edit. It'll be uh, published this week on Amazon. Fantastic. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, so it's, it'll be Devil Take the Hindmost, part two, the aftermath. Yeah. Can't wait to have it. Can't wait to read it. Um you know, and we'd love to have you back if, if your time allows uh, to tell that. Oh, my portion. pleasure. Yeah, I feel like we just, boy, I tell you, there's so much to, to talk about in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, but thank you for sharing your story because it, it, I can imagine it, it's been hard. Um, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I, I appreciate you guys very, very much. Yeah. You know, part of the healing is having guys like yourself just able to listen and believe, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, the believing sure. part. For sure. You know, for sure. yep. There's still a lot of closed minds out there, you know, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't do it for the money. <laughs> Put it that <laughs> yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah. None of us yeah. do. Trust me. Yeah. Not yeah, exactly. Um, Michael, yep. if you want to just hang on after uh, we get done on it, we just want to thank you off air, but everybody um, that was Michael and his, and his amazing story. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Yeah, so again, um, I think more than anything, I really, my my heart goes out. I mean, and I say that, I, I really, I, I say that because it, it's amazing. Like, it's amazing what he went through and what had well, happened. yeah, I, I mean, if, like, so I don't want this to sound bad because I'm, I'm not trying to question uh, the authenticity of his story or anything mm. he came across is very, very genuine to me. Yeah. But even if, like, only a tenth of that is not, like, embellished and, like, actual shit that happened, that's right. fucking terrifying, let alone if all of it is just, you know, like, no, no remembering it differently than it was or no, you know, trying to make the story sound better, which I, I don't think is the case. I'm just saying. Yeah. Like, even if you want to look at it very, very, very skeptically, it's still like, holy fucking shit. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to look at it skeptically, like, take a hard skeptic's look at it, it's still just like, where were the adults in this guy's life? You yeah, know, yeah. where were the professionals trying to fix her mental disorders? Like, you just kind of leaving a kid out, hanging out to dry and fend for himself. I mean, you know, where were where was this guy's like support system? Like any type of adult or like, you know, child services or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, he sounded like, I mean, you know, I'm not some great Randini. I can tell what's real or not, but I mean, he, he did seem very genuine to me. And like, Mm -hmm. I mean, he sounded like he went through a hell of a time. Yeah, he, with a, he sounded like someone who was like remembering stuff, not reading a script or right, exactly like, right. Yeah. of his book or something. Yep. You know? Yeah, I just uh, man, I just feel so bad for him, really. But and and happy for him now that he's. I mean, he's still. He says, you know, he's struggling with this his whole life, and he probably will struggle with it, and you know, yeah. until it's oh. done. But yeah, he'll probably never go away. Well, know? I mean, like this, uh, kind of an aside. Um, but I've been rewatching Stranger Things because spooky season. And, uh, and I just kept thinking to myself, cause I'm like about halfway through season three right now. And I'm like thinking to myself, like, how do you keep having these like super crazy, super traumatizing events happen to you over and over and over again and not get like super fucked up about it? You yeah. Know and what you, I mean? you still going to go have ice cream when it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and yeah. that's like in the context of a show where weird shit happens to someone once in a while, not someone who lives with it day in and day out in reality. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I, I couldn't. So even if, if, and again, you know, some, what both of you guys are are stating, there's no doubt, there's no need to doubt the guy. And, and so Mm -hmm. on the hindsight, so say you're not a believer, you don't believe in possession. You think it's bullshit. You laugh at, you know, that, that stuff is just a part of make believe stuff over here. If you take all that away and just look at the mental illness, like you said, John, where the fuck are the grown-ups? How does a social health care system break down? How does a woman how does how does this happen for that chunk of time where you don't have it literally takes her coming out of the house with a knife, chasing her daughter for the neighbors to call a cop? Like how does it unravel to that extent? Like and that yeah. that just there alone is like holy shit. I mean, when he was describing his mom like five feet tall, 260 pounds, long, stringy, greasy, black hair, the teeth, the tongue. I was like, holy fuck. Like that's terrifying. And then plus Um, like all the voices and talk like that just sounds like it was hell inside that house. Yeah. Oh, I could. Oh, 
Yeah. And so likewise, he's got issues. Jesus Christ. I, I, there's no way I'd bring myself on shows and write a book and talk about that. I, I'd be. No, I mean, and, and I, I mean, I that's what he says is like, you know, it makes him, I think it helps him with people that kind of believe him. Cause I feel like probably he was just too afraid to say anything when he was younger for people just not believing him. And then yeah. he's like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll just go home to the fucking psycho at the house. And yeah. Afraid, embarrassed, no you know, because obviously no one did because no one helped him his whole life. So why would, you know what I mean? Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, surely yeah. you had to have tried to tell somebody at some point, a teacher, or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just the lack of adults <laughs> in the story. Am- it just, is just amazes like, me. I know. And I, I help. Yeah. I didn't mean to harp on like his dad so much, but I kept wanting to go back like, well, no, wait a minute. What's your dad doing? How come he's not there? Has he seen what's going on? Like, I just, I don't know. I couldn't comprehend. That yeah. I d- yeah. And I definitely didn't mean to like, yeah, go that way either, but it's yeah. like, I'm just like, what the fuck? I, I know. Help somebody. <laughs> this is a problem, yeah. you know? But uh, yeah. it was a truly terrifying story. I mean, could you imagine oh. seeing your, like, the, just the, t- like, smashing her chest with a log and just saying all this weird shit? And I just couldn't. I, I couldn't fathom. I, I mean, you know, I mean, I've got crazy relatives, but Jesus, they, they never equal well, to that. I mean, speaking of uh, just the state of, like, social services and mental health and stuff um like in that era uh my grandma had some like mental health issues when she was when like my mom and her brothers and sisters were kids Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh the doctors just basically had her on a shitload of uppers and downers to the point where she didn't really know who she was at some point yeah and like medicating Mm -hmm. yeah and the uh the repercussions of that on my mom's immediate family have been huge. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was like nothing insane like this. That was like someone who the system couldn't really help at that time or they were trying to help, but like not in a, the best way possible. Yeah. And, uh, and not anyone who was like violently like lashing out, 24 hours a day you know yeah yeah i yeah I, yeah anyway um wow holy shit yeah well what a story i mean so yeah and again i'd love to have the guy on uh he's got a part two that he's written and and of course you know he's trying to keep his life together as, as best he can with other things um mm-hmm. yeah yeah just um yeah just amazing and uh just want to get your guys insights about it because you know we we actually he so he emailed us and I think just trying to kind of, you know, get a story out there a bit, uh, which is refreshing for a change and, you know, come to find out, uh, wow, what a what a story. And, yeah, unfortunately, it does fall right into the Halloween time frame. So if nothing else, guys, enjoy that story because that fits October like a T. Yeah, I so. mean, if you visualize some of those stories, I was just like, that's fucking was, terrifying. Fucking no, crazy. thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, great, Michael. Thanks for having. If you're listening, thank you for coming on. It, it's it. Uh, I can't believe our ordeal, but man, you know, we, we we can't wait to to help you in the in the future. If we cross paths again, by all means, you know, we're available. Um, if you have anything to say about the interview or anything else to say, uh, tales to tell, anything, you can write us at strangeuncles at gmail You can call us at eight zero one two five two sixty nine forty five. I haven't got the dolphin sound yet. Working on it. I didn't find one. So, uh, anyway, aside from that, how are we on socials? Oh, you know, we're in the usual, 
Facebook, Instagram, Strange Uncles Podcast, uh, on Twitter at Strange Uncles. Um, if YouTube is your prepared preferred way to uh, consume podcasts, uh, the audio version goes up there every week. Um, we've kind of slacked off on video stuff, but, uh, you know, if I can ever remember the password, we might put some yeah, video Maybe, maybe we'll throw a video there. out there now that we're all on video, kind of, sort of. You know, we'll see what happens. And Josh, thank you, too, by the way. You got uh, cute little Instagram videos that you've been putting together, little clips in there. They're exciting. So, yeah. Yeah, not bad. Um, John, you got anything? Nope. Nope. All right. Well, that being said, I'll tell you what. I'm gonna. I gotta go cry myself to sleep tonight because I don't know that. Yeah. I, I'm just. Yeah, I'm gonna go and thank God. I, you know, I thought I had a messed up it? childhood, and uh, oh, man, man. I, I I feel for Michael. So couldn't, yeah, couldn't I'm just gonna imagine. be grateful for what I got. Yep. Absolutely. No one told me spooky season was gonna be that spooky. So and that emotional. <laughs> I'm gonna Listen, go I'm watch like, up with Disney it. cartoons or something. I don't know. Right. Yeah something simple anyway uh with that being said hopefully you guys enjoyed that uh we've got another guest coming on uh that um is an author too and and he's on his way along with some other ones lined up there in the pipeline along with some fun stuff for halloween and then i will be seeing you guys next week uh i will be in salt lake again and so we'll get together live in person and uh love to see you miss you guys and uh we'll go from there so oh yeah all right awesome close the gates everyone